0: Good morning. It's great to be together as we open God's Word. If you will, turn with me in your Bible to our scripture passage this morning in Hebrews chapter 3, and we'll be looking at verse 12 to 19. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 to 19. And this morning we're going to look at what the Bible has to say about our life together as a community. And so I'm grateful to Pastor Moody for this opportunity to wave the flag for us to care for one another in the context of community. So please stand as I read God's word, if you're able. Hebrews 3, starting in verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Please be seated. And would you join me as I pray and ask for the Lord's help in this time now? Heavenly Father, as we open your word this morning, help us to behold the beauty and the glories of Christ. Stir our affections for Jesus in such a way that they would overflow into our love and our care for one another here in this body. We pray that you would do that for your namesake and for each one of our everlasting joy in you. And so we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So just over four years ago, the pastors and the elders and you all as a congregation called my family and I to college church. And I was tasked with launching our small groups ministry. And at the time, I asked the pastoral staff and the elders, and I said, well, what am I starting with? How many do we have? And they said, we don't know. Figure it out. That's your job. And Since then, in the four years since that time, we as a church have really come around one of our core values, this idea of fellowship, to care for one another. We have over 110 adult small groups, and hundreds of women will get together this Wednesday to study the Bible in women's Bible study, and men gather on Friday mornings at 6 a.m. to care for each other, and many of our students are involved in small groups during the week as well. And so we have really embraced this idea of caring for one another in community. And so we praise God for that wonderful gift and privilege. And yet what I want to do this morning is very simply to remind us that what we get to do in community, in caring for one another, to sharpening each other, to help one another, is perhaps one of the most vital and important and eternally significant things we can possibly do. It is a vitally important thing that we engage in together. Two weeks ago, Pastor Moody preached on Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, which says, Let us us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as we see the day drawing near. So we have this job to spur one another on, to stir each other up to love and good works. And what I want to do is turn that to the other side. Not only do we push each other and say, let's show more love. Let's care for each other in a better way. Let's do more good works. Let's evangelize. But to say, beware of the deception of sin. Come back from the edge of the cliff of spiritual destruction. Don't think that way. Beware. Your heart is deceitful. It's like a child that wanders a little too close to the train tracks. Our senses go up, the hair sticks up on the back of our neck, and we watch that child in case they get a little too close. We're ready to leap in action and pull them back. That's the job that we have and we get to do together. And the reason the Bible calls us to something like this is because we're all like that child. We all wander a little too close to the train tracks, we're tempted, we have inclinations towards sin. It's very real temptation to question God's goodness. Why would you do this to me, God? Or our hearts are prone to wander. It's easy to get it caught up in the hustle and bustle of fall and to put God on the back burner and to forget about him. Or sometimes trials come, maybe health, maybe financial, and it rocks our world, and we don't know what to do, and we lose sight of God completely. Where are you? What's going on? And sometimes we're just tired. We're tired of unanswered prayer. We're tired of pushing forward. And we want to throw in the towel. Maybe that's a better path. And so there is a very real temptation towards unbelief, a hardness of heart, and doubting God's promises. It's what each one of us faces regularly. If not now, you will. And so, what do we do with these temptations and inclinations? How do we not throw in the towel and give up? Well, what I want to do, and what I believe our passage in Hebrews 3 is getting at, is that God keeps his people. God keeps those who are his through means. He uses things to keep us. And we'll look at what those means are. But before we get there, I want to highlight how God keeps us from three verses. Philippians 1, 6. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. What God started, he will finish. Or 1 Corinthians 1, 7 and 8. You are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So God will be faithful to sustain you if you've trusted in him, if you've put your hope in him. Or perhaps John... 10, 27, and 28. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. So if we're Jesus' sheep, we will not perish, and God will keep us, and no one can snatch them out of his hand. God will ensure that we persevere to the very end. And yet, God uses means so that that will happen in each of our lives. And in our passage in Hebrews, the author is saying, don't fall away. Persevere to the end by taking hold of the means that God has given you. And what are those means? How how does God ensure that we persevere to the very end? So our plan is to walk through Hebrews 3, 12 to 19, and there are three main ways that God keeps us. The first is a caution. He gives us a caution in verse 12, and then 15 to 19. Next, he gives us community in verse 13. And then third, he gives us, ultimately, Christ, and we'll see those things in verse 14. So look with me at verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So he issues a warning, a caution. Beware of cultivating an evil, an unbelieving heart towards the living God. And this warning comes right on the heels of verses 7 to 11, which is a quotation from Psalm 95. And that quotation from Psalm 95 harkens back to this wilderness generation in the time of Moses. And what the author of Hebrews has been doing so far is to say, Jesus is better than everything else. He's better than angels. And then he says, he's better than Moses. And now remember, those in the days of Moses, they failed because they had a hardened heart. They rebelled against God. And he's saying, don't be like that. Take care to not have the same type of heart as those in the days of Moses. Well, what kind of heart is that? Well, if you'll remember, God had just flexed his arm in such an incredible way. He showed his power. Ten miraculous plagues, climaxing in the death of the firstborn of all of Egypt. And so Israel comes out of the promised land. And God guides them with a pillar of cloud and a pillar of smoke. And they cross the Red Sea as if on dry land. And what does God do at this point? God cares for them. He's guiding them. And what does Israel say? And the whole congregation of the people of Israel, this is Exodus sixteen two, grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. We'd rather be slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt than to have to trust God in the wilderness. All because of a little lack of food and water. We'd rather be slaves than have to trust God. This is the heart of unbelief that's at work in the days of Moses. But it doesn't end there. It continues. God gives them water from a rock, bread that falls from heaven, and as they scope out the promised land that God has prepared for these people, what happens? You know the story. Numbers 14, 11. They grumble and they grumble. And so God says to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? This is the most spectacular picture of redemption in all of the Bible until we see Christ. And what do the people do? They grumble and harden their hearts against God who is leading them and caring for them and loving them. And so every man and woman over the age of 20 dies in that wilderness. Every grandfather, every father, dead. John Owen, in The Mortification of Sin, writes about the deceptive and tempting nature of sin. He says, Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every covetous desire would be oppression. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism, might it grow to its head. Sin, if you let it take root in your heart and soul, will grow to its natural ends. John Owen called this condition being sermon proof. It's a great phrase. That the preaching of God's word no longer lands on you with any power. That you just sit there and it just goes over your head. You're critical. You're angry. You're skeptical. You no longer care about prayer or Bible reading. Sin seems not that bad. And it eventually leads to what Owen says is the hardening of the heart, the searing of the conscience, the blinding of the mind, the stupefying of the affections, and the deceiving of the whole soul. What might that look like for us? You might sit here, but inside your heart is crossed and you want nothing to do with this. You can only criticize the sermon and critique the worship and despise your neighbor. When the conviction of the Spirit comes, you're covered in Teflon, so it slides right off. We're never moved by the glories of Christ. Now look with me at verses 15 to 19. The author is driving this point home. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And then he gives us three different questions, rhetorical questions in many ways that he answers. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? And the answer to all of those is this wilderness generation hardened their hearts towards God. And so they did not enter into God's rest. They didn't persevere. They didn't remain faithful. And his point is, don't be like that. Don't be like that. See the deadliness of sin and hardening your heart towards God. And so as we reflect on this, God calls us, each one of us, this morning. He wants us to persevere in the faith. And the way in which he does that is through this caution, this warning, so that each one of us would not become sermon proof but would actually respond and heed the preaching of God's word. And as we read his Bible, every morning do you read his word and read it and take it in until it brings you to tears of how God loves you and cares for you and how blood was poured out at Calvary for you. We ought to. We must not cultivate a skeptical and calloused heart before God's word in the midst of all the challenges and trials that we face. And so God keeps us. God wants us to persevere by issuing this caution. Heed the word of the Lord. But God not only uses a caution, he actually uses community. Look with me at verse 13. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So God has given each one of us the beauty and the gift of mutual exhortation in the body of Christ. We are to care for one another and to help each other. And it is a gift. And some of you might think, well, it doesn't seem like a gift to me. Church would be a lot easier if it didn't have all these people. And that's probably true. At us, we'll be out of a job. But, We are called by God to remind one another of the glories of the cross and of who we are, people made in the image of God and what God has done, shed his blood on the cross through his very own son, Jesus, and has loved us with an everlasting love. We're to remind one another of the very truths that we already know. That's what happens in community. So often I've needed other people who would look at me and say, Don't forget, God cares about you. God loves you. Who's doing that in your life for you? When you join the body of Christ in conversion, you got a new job description. And your job description is to exhort and encourage those around you. Our eternal destiny is a community project. It's a mutual endeavor that we're all called to. Now, if you're an unbeliever sitting here, and you're just checking this out, this sounds awfully scary. You mean I'm responsible for all these people? Yes, God's church is a family. We don't get to pick our brothers and sisters, our family members. And yet, if you're just checking this out, deep down, you yourself know that you wish that you had someone who was looking out for you. Not out of self-interest, what they can get out of you, but out of a selflessness. You wish you had someone that would care for you, that would seek your best, that would make sure that you are flourishing. In Christianity, the gospel says the only people who can do that, to truly love selflessly, are those who have been loved with a selfless love. And we've experienced that love, have we not? In the love of Christ. And only when we've been loved with a selfless love can we then care for others. Not out of self-interest, but out of selflessness. Verse 13 calls us to do this every day. Regularly, consistently. Person to person ministry. God has ordained the body of Christ to help one another in caring for each other. I remember... My wife and I were in a small group, uh, not at this church, and there was a young couple who had just gotten married, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. And uh, they, uh, the husband's job, as well as his hobbies, um, made it so that he was away from home quite a bit. And my wife and I looked at that because we were in small group with them week after week, and we said, I think they're on the fast track to divorce if he keeps this up. And so we, you know, gently came alongside them and and just said, hey, you know, it's your anniversary. Maybe instead of working, you should take her out for dinner. You know, simple stuff, right? It's, it's her birthday. You should write a card, maybe. Just a thought. Um, and this was news to him. Uh, he wasn't that kind of guy. You know, he's like, she knows I love her. I pay the rent, right? Um, and he just wasn't wired that way. And so we, we came along them in unspectacular ways. And, and today, they have an imperfect but flourishing marriage. Who are the people that are coming alongside you? Who are the people that you're coming alongside? And the reason we need this is because we're all prone to self-deception. You might say, I have the Holy Spirit and I got my Bible. I don't need other people. And the reality is, you can be self-deceived. It's like bad breath. You can't know if you have it, but your neighbor certainly can smell it. Jesus himself says in Matthew 7, Why do you see the speck that it's, that's in your brother's eye but not see the log that's sticking out of your own? We need one another. God uses the means of his community to care for us. One of our members uh, at one point related a story to me how he was getting his hair cut and he was talking to the hairdresser. And the hairdresser and him got on the topic of church. And she said, you know, what church do you go to? And he said, oh, I go to college church. And she said, oh, the church of the rich and famous. And this can't be further from the truth. We are not the church of the rich and famous. We are the church of the broken and needy. Regardless of appearances, we are all desperately in need of God's transforming grace in our lives. None of you woke up this morning thinking, I don't need God. If you woke up this morning believing in God, God kept you through the night, and He's going to use our community to keep us until the very end. This is who we are. And so, where are you getting this type of encouragement? One of the ways I want us to take this exhortation to heart is to begin to think what are the relationships I need to put myself into that may be uncomfortable so that we can see this work take place, so that we can be humble and transparent. Paul Tripp calls this, or he says this, we need the loving courage of honesty, and we need the thankful humility of approachability. So we need the loving courage of honesty. Stepping into someone else's life, that's hard. What if they don't like what I say? What if I ruin this relationship? We need the loving courage of honesty, but we also need the thankful humility of approachability to say, speak into my life. I know I haven't made it yet. Where are the areas that you see that I'm falling short? How, how can you serve me so that I would grow more into the likeness of Jesus? So who can you encourage? Is it some new believers that you know of here at the church? Maybe it's a couple working through a hard marriage. Maybe it's a family that you know of that's working through a hard adoption or foster care situation or the couple silently mourning that they can't have any biological children. Maybe it's someone facing unwanted singleness, or the widow, or the widower, or the family that's overwhelmed by disability, or the adult child that's wandered away from the faith, or a family member that's been incarcerated, or someone dealing with addiction, or substance abuse, or a mental health diagnosis. Maybe it's a man or a woman who has either encouraged or had an abortion. Maybe it's someone struggling with same-sex attraction. Or maybe a marriage that's fractured by adultery. And the list can go on and on. And this is where all of us live. Don't raise your hand, but how many of you are either experiencing one of these things or know someone that is? That's all of us. We are broken and needy people and we need the body of Christ to come around us. None of you exists for yourself. None of you is self-sufficient. And God has ordained it so that he gives us not only himself but one another so that we could care for each other. It's actually one of the really unique things about this sanctuary is that if you're sitting over here you can look at these people over here and see if they're listening. We get to (laughs) not forget That we're one body. We don't exist for ourselves. It's not just you and Jesus and my Bible. And so I have two very practical applications for us that will be totally unsurprising coming from the small groups pastor, right? If you're not in any sort of community where you're known and where you know others, where someone can care for you and where you can be vulnerable and honest, put yourself into that type of community. I don't know what it may look like. It may be a small group. It may be some of these other avenues that we have here at the church. But avail yourself of that opportunity. It's one of the means that God wants to use to keep you so that you persevere to the very end. And the other application is if you're already in some sort of community like that, and I know we have many. We have many life groups who've been together for many years and other other. Uh, forms of community, and maybe if you're a student, you have something like this at the college. Is it a place where you can be vulnerable, when, and others can be vulnerable as well? Can they talk about their frustrations and doubts and worries? It's not okay to be friendly and nice, but shallow. That's actually even more destructive, because if the people of God can't talk about the things that we're actually dealing with, then there's no other place for it. And so are you a group where you can share your doubts and frustrations and walk with each other and sit at one another's bedsides at the hospital and hold one another's hands and sing your favorite hymns and care for you until the very end? So God keeps us. God does his work of keeping us through his word, issuing us a caution. You need to heed God's word. But we also need community. We need one another. We desperately need one another. And ultimately, God points us to his son, Jesus Christ. Look with me at verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And so God uses exhortation and God uses our community, but God uses our gaze as we look at Jesus He wants us to set our eyes on Christ because we have already come to share in Christ if we hold on to the very end. When we hold on to Christ, when we've already come to share in him, we will demonstrate that when we hold firm to the confidence to the end. We don't get Jesus if we try hard enough, if we do enough, but we've already come to share in Christ and so God uses this as a caution, and an exhortation, and he wants us ultimately to set our gaze on Jesus. And what he's been doing in the whole of Hebrews is to say that Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than any high priest. Jesus institutes a better covenant. Look to this Jesus who's better than all that's come before. Don't abandon him. Set your gaze on Christ that's the point of small groups, and that's the point of preaching, is to point your gaze to Jesus, and you're to look to him who is going to keep you. Don't abandon Christ. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, therefore, since we've been surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race that is marked out before us. Looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So, yes, we need to do the work of throwing off the sin, and yes, we have to run the race, but ultimately, more than anything else, you need to set your gaze on Christ. Look to Jesus. He's the author and He's the perfecter. What He began, He will finish. And he conquered death and sin and Satan at the cross and is now seated, unlike all other high priests who stand in the presence of God, who could not enter into the Holy of Holies except for once a year. Jesus tears that curtain apart, brings us in, and sits because his work is done. Glory in this Christ. That's the point of all this. In small groups, we don't just come alongside one another to help each other with shallow cliches. Oh, it's going to get better. No, set your gaze on Jesus. Look to the promises that he sets before you. Don't doubt how he's going to care for you and how he's going to uphold you and how he loves you. We need to look to Christ. We need to endure in this way. And when we do that, we can take off the mass. The smiles when there's no smile inside and say, I need your help. To step into community and say, I need someone to pray for me. I'm hurting. I'm broken. And we need to create those safe places. We need to go deeper. And when we do that, we'll behold Jesus that much more clearly. And we'll experience his grace in a transformative way. I remember doing the funeral of a dear and beloved saint here at this church, and she had followed Jesus for over seven decades. And in one of her final conversations with one of the pastors, he asked her, what will you say to Jesus when you see him? And she replied, I'll thank him for loving me so well. I'll thank him for loving me so well. And what God is doing in and through this passage and in and through the body that we have here and in and through this word from God is to love you. God wants you to persevere to the very end. And the way that that's going to happen is when we care for one another, when we don't harden our hearts to God's word. We don't cultivate an evil, unbelieving heart, but we care for each other in this place. And we extend ourselves and we step into the messes of one another's life. And ultimately, we help each other set our gaze on Christ who is for us, who loves us, and who has died at great cost so that we could do this very thing. This is not about small groups. This is not so I can pad my numbers and say we have more than we did last year. This is so that we would care for one another and persevere to the very end. Revelation 2.10 says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. And the way that you're going to be faithful is when God keeps you in and through the body that we have. And so will we respond to that? Join me as we pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would cause these words to sink deep. We, cause, we pray that you would cause your word to sink deep and that we would increasingly, because I know it's happening, that, but that we would increasingly be the type of place that cares for one another, that can be open and transparent and honest about our struggles, and that we can point one another to the glory and the power and the majesty of the cross and of Christ. And that we would care for each other so that we would all experience a greater joy in Jesus. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.